Hi, Gus Warland here, and welcome to Not An Overnight Success, brought to you by Shaw & Partners Financial Services. In this podcast, we sit down with some very successful people from the world of business, entertainment and sport to chat about their lives and their journey and how they became the success that they are today. In today's episode, we are chatting to Brad Freddie Fittler, a man that was an absolute hero of mine growing up, and I can't believe that he's a mate now. Freddie is arguably one of the best players in the game of rugby league. He was a boy from Penrith that could never sit still. He belonged on the footy field and it always came easy to him. Freddie captained his state and his country, played 16 seasons and almost 450 games at the highest level. For this chat, we went to Freddie's home and you'll hear us talking about that in our chat. After a workout and some meditation together, we sat outside in the sunshine where I got to know Freddie on a deeper level. This is the type of interview where you kind of forget that the microphones are there and everything is recorded. You'll hear birds chirping, Freddie's llamas in the background and the occasional crunch of toast. Put it this way, it wasn't the most professional setting but it brought out some sides of Freddie that I hadn't seen before. Freddie is a larrikin who has never lost sight of where he comes from. Freddie and I share a passion for mental fitness. He's an ambassador for Gotcha for Life and he's the coach of New South Wales. But the most important part of that role for him is not just coaching the boys, the professionals, those three games a year, but actually going around the state, making people fall in love with the team, making people fall in love with the process. And also understanding that he's bringing up these youngsters through the under-16s, the under-18s. It really is all about making sure that those players are the best possible people that they can be. As for all of these podcasts, Shaw and Partners have generously donated $10,000 to the charity of the choice of each of our guests. We discuss who that money goes to in this chat. The executive producer of this podcast is Keisha Pettit, and we couldn't do it without our great mate, Kelly Stubbs. Let's get into our chat with Freddie Fittler. Well, here we are, Freddie Fittler. How are you, mate? I'm very well. I want to set the scene for our listeners. We are sitting at your beautiful property. I won't say where it is. The sun is shining. We've just done stretching, meditation, bit of strength work, and we're sitting outside your beautiful house in the sunshine eating watermelon. How good. <laughs> A boy from Penrith done good. <laughs> Do you ever sit back, Freddie, and just sort of look at it and go, wow, this is pretty amazing. I've played footy, and this is my life now. Well, the amazing part about this place is the plants. You know, the majority of them I bought is $2 plants and that was at the start of COVID and we had all that rain. So they're now turned into these things every day where bees are coming in and, you know, we actually live in a house that's got one bathroom <laughs> and there's two teenage kids, my wife, Marie and myself. So we, we don't live lavishly at all <laughs> and every morning you can imagine what the household's like but once you walk outside... Plants are unbelievable, and I've just, over the time, I've, you just fall in love with them, and it never stops, so it gives you something to walk out to every day. And as we were doing the workout today, which is an outside workout, just the fragrances and stuff that yeah, come from it. and all the bees, so it's a great time of year. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. Mm. Speaking of beautiful, pretty, Marie, she's just literally lobbed out with the green juice and some toast. Vegemite. <laughs> oh, how good's that? Thank you so much. There we go. Now, this is the best. I didn't way. hear the juicer. <laughs> Does that mean that this juice isn't? Is this? No, come this, out mate, of this is the best juice. We listened to a great comedian last night. Can't think of his name. And he, he does a great spiel on juices, like just how ridiculous having a juicer is. You know, you, you go and buy forty dollars worth of produce, shove it into the juicer, you get out a thimble of juice. <laughs> <laughs> you take three hours to clean it up. Yeah. Like, seriously. 
every, how did they ever sell juices to people? Unbelievable. At eight bucks fifty a small, twelve dollars yeah. a medium, and sixteen a large. <laughs> Freddie, your mum's uh, visiting at the moment, and she popped out and said good day when we were uh, doing our workout this morning. She had a real sense of calmness about her. Has it? Has that always been the case? Yeah, I think so. She's just always been there. You know, as a kid, and you know, even through my teens and twenties, and and you only realise now what it's like being an adult that you have got your own teenage kids. Is that I was just off and running. Mum tells me stories, you know, when I was like about two years old that we went into a place in Liverpool, we used to get on the bus, mum would go and do the shopping with two kids and she went to this place, it was like a, uh, a community place and she said, can you just take him? <laughs> <laughs> can you just take him? I need, a, I need a rest. I just can't deal with it any longer and I'm gathering that's what I was like. I just, I, you know, for a long time I just didn't stop. And never looked back and just kept going. A lot of the time in the wrong direction and a lot of bad, bad decisions along the way, which you can tell now getting to my age 50 where you sort of wonder where a lot of your your urges and that come from. And, you know, it's the things you do as a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old. You can feel that stuff coming through, but, you know, I was flat out. When it comes to your life, and I know a few boys from Penrith that lived a pretty wild life, obviously, <laughs> MG, Mark Guy, I spent a lot of time with on the radio doing brekkie. What was it like out there? And when you say the bad calls and stuff, are they things you look back on and now it's just part of the journey or you go, oh, gee, I'm lucky I got away with that? No, totally lucky. Very lucky. You know, you're, you're dealing with alcohol, drugs, at 12 and 13 years old, you're really lucky to get out of it and you can just see all the urges and that you fight now are from them smoking drinking and drugs all from you know year eight you know and i look at my kids now you know they're much older they haven't had to deal with any of that stuff and a lot of the the stuff that comes from that you know you'd obviously you know the field you'd deal in you know mental fitness and there's you know, so many of the, the kids in that block that i grew up in dead for all different reasons jail dead just Weren't lucky enough to have something to bring him back down to earth like I did with sport. So was it just rugby league? Yeah, bro, yeah, it was other sports. I loved everything. I loved school. You know, I really enjoyed school. You know, I had to be, just my mind had to be onto something. Flat chat. The foot was down, mate. <laughs> the foot was down. The foot stopped at about 9 o'clock at night, then woke up about 4.35 in the morning and off again. So uh, footy come easy, really easy. I was good at it young and, you know, obviously it... It just worked. I love cricket. You know, that was where we grew up was, you know, footy in winter, cricket in summer. Didn't really play much else. Played a bit of basketball. Yeah, that was a pretty awesome place to grow up. It was like you know, school was put in the middle of the day, but you're still, you're, you know, we are playing from 7 o'clock in the morning and then you finish at 6 o'clock at night you know, every day. It was like a huge caravan park, you know. <laughs> <laughs> now, your mum was such a huge part of your life. I've never heard you talk about your, your father. Was he someone that was... Absent or I'm not too mm. sure. So dad left when mum was pregnant with me. Okay. So I got an older brother and I ended up meeting my dad, Robert. I met him when I was no, about 19 or 20. I still chat with him now. Uh, he drives a truck over to Western Australia and back to Brisbane and, you know, we have a pretty good relationship. We don't see each other often. Speak every now and then, but it's all cool. Yeah, but I didn't meet him till I was about 20. Were you nervous meeting him for the first time? I think so. But there was nothing I, I pined over. I wasn't out chasing. Uh, Mum sort of organised it, but, man, I was flat out. There was something in front of me to take my attention. <laughs> Whatever was behind me, it was already old news, so never felt like 
I grew up, you know, missing anything. I do realise now, not having a father, the, the relationship I have with my kids, being there with Marie, you can see how I think a, you know, a happy relationship would could work easier. You know, I can see the things I missed, you know, that discipline, I suppose. We're talking about, you know, the smoking, the drinking and all that sort of stuff at a young age. I could imagine that would be a bit of a father's role to identify that stuff. So, But outside that, no, didn't miss much. I remember my dad lived the, left the family home when I was quite young and I just craved other blokes' dads or older brothers. Yeah. I looked up to them, I asked them the questions, you know, I ended up having a couple of really good mentors that gave me the help that I needed with girlfriends or choices to be made and so forth. Did you have anyone like that that you could go to and talk to about stuff? I think most of the coaches... Yeah, I'm obviously assimilated with the coaches because that's what I did. I, you know, always playing footy or playing cricket, and they were always really kind. And I had a lot of sort of adults, male adults, that looked after me. And my coach at Cambridge Park was good, Barry Scanlon, really good fella. Uh, you know, give me a bit of work, you know, in the holidays and do a bit of concreting. And I don't know if I did much. <laughs> I don't know how much. Yeah, if I added much value, but yeah, he was always a great help. I had a lot of really good teachers. That showed a lot of care, so, yeah, I, I, mate, I felt like I had plenty of male influence. Gus Gould would obviously be someone that our listeners would know, you know, and he obviously went to the Roosters as well with you after success at the Panthers. What sort of role has he played? What sort of bloke is, is Gus? Well, he, he was there at the crucial stage. Uh, it all come really quickly. So I, I was, you know, high school, in year 12, I was 17, playing in semifinals for Penrith and 18, playing in grand finals, playing for Australia. And, you know, getting full of yourself. <laughs> so, you know, he was there to pull me back down. Some real stern talking to. Times I went and moved with him, lived with him for, you know, a couple of months. And, you know, he thought that was the best path and, you know, it was at the time. So you know, he played a huge, a huge role in that crucial stage when you need someone to tell you to pull your head in. But then also have enough, uh, have enough courage to then provide a home for me and it wasn't just about him just sitting me down in a corner and telling me how bad I was. He also then, he has that level of compassion where he realised that I needed more than just a chat mm. and moved in and spent three months. So, yeah, he was a huge part. You said playing for Australia, semi-finals, grand finals, you know, and they sort of roll off the tongue, those things, because you weren't even 20 when all that stuff happened, mm. winning premierships and so forth. What was it like, Freddie, to actually get a phone call, or did you get a phone call to say that you've been selected to play first grade initially, and then secondly, you know, playing for your state and your country? How does that all happen for a young bloke? So I played like the junior rep teams, and I played with a bloke named Peter Stacker, and his dad was a reserve grade coach, Len Stacker. So after the competition, I think we got beaten the final by Illawarra in that, and then a couple of weeks later they rang me. I was on like a scholarship with Penrith. I think they give you like a thousand bucks and some gear and stuff. Yeah. So I had a meeting with Len Stacker and said, do you want to come play reserve grade? So I took mum and we just sat there and went, you know, I, was, I was nervous about playing men. You know, that was a step up. So I said, yeah. And we played Manly. They end up, I think Manly won the grand final that year. I think Penrith were coming second or third last. And we went out and I scored a couple of tries and uh, nearly got bashed up. You know, it all happened. So then the week after, at Penrith, what happened? You used to walk through the change rooms. And there'd be three pieces of paper on the wall that have President's Cup, Reserve Grade, First Grade. And whatever piece of paper you're on, that's which direction you went to train. So after the first week, we played Manly in Reserve Grade. Walked in and then my name was on the reserves for First Grade. So one game I was and playing <laughs> First Grade. Wow. 
the fortunate thing was I was my best mate was Ben Alexander. So Greg Alexander, obviously, uh, his brother who I knew through Ben, and he was the the star. And then Mark Geyer was going out with Ben's sister, so I knew him. So, you know, I wasn't walking in like a total stranger. Pretty much never looked back from there. What was it like to look at your name on that board? Were you shocked to see that after one yeah. performance in reserve grade, you were in the ones? Yeah, absolutely. Just went, all right. I had to ask them, where do we train? Where do we, where do we go now? I hadn't done this part. So off we went. It was funny, though. You know, there was no – it wasn't about accepting – there was no if you if you waited for someone to come and talk to you, then you'd be lonely. <laughs> you had to sort of take a position, and you had to own a position. And any time around footy, I've always felt comfortable, so I've always felt like I knew what I was doing, and I felt like I could take a position. <laughs> this is the beauty of doing a podcast outside. Look over your shoulder there. You got some llamas or something there? Like, what's the story there? So I watched a show, Doctor Harry. Oh yeah, he did a show on a lady in Goulburn who had llamas, and she had them like pets. But then when they went through the habits and traits of a llama, you know, they don't rip the grass out. They eat across the top line. They mow. Oh. They poop in the one spot. So that's obviously comes in handy. It's a win-win, yeah. And their poop doesn't smell, so you don't have to deal with the flies. Oh. Why do they get such a bad rap? They're they're a better. They're a great animal. Yeah. Honestly. Other than the fact that they remind me of like an eastern suburbs type where they they look wonderful and they sort of look like they're interested in talking to you. And then when you get closer, they just pull away and say, get away. I'm not talking to you. <laughs> Who are you? Yeah. You're like an eastern suburbs type of animal, you know? I get it. Have you it's ne- actually amazing that people don't have them like, you know, just, you know, as yard pets because, yeah, they're fantastic. Yeah. Do you have you named them? Barrack. Barrack? Barrack Obama, like okay. Lama, yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> So Barrick needs a partner, Michelle. Yeah. <laughs> and the other one, the baby's Betty. <laughs> That's so good. They're very cool. Mate, you've, you've built a little paradise here. It's beautiful, Freddie. So, Freddie, you've been picked for first grade. You're in there with all these internationals and so forth. Do you ever feel that you're not ready? Do you ever feel that you shouldn't be there? Or is, like you say, your 100 miles an hour attitude and your skill set and people giving you the right advice just makes you feel... You're a part of it and should be. Well, the first game was a scarier game because that was pretty much the first time I played men. You know, there were moments there where making my first tackle and doing that sort of stuff. You know, once you got over, once I got over the fact that men, they ran a bit harder and they're a bit bigger, but, you know, the same technique that you're using on kids worked on men. There was a moment where there's a bloke named John Jones who played for Manly, mm. big front rower, and, yeah, I was on the ground. So he's come down and hit me. Like, and I don't know whether it was an elbow or whatever it was. And so I'm thinking, well, what do I do here, you know? I, there was a couple of moments in these early games where, I, well, what do I do? So I thought I'll hit him back. And then, so I don't know if I even hit him, you know, just whether I pushed him. And at those stages, you could fight. So he actually grabbed me pretty much by the throat and he was just about to hit me. And it was a bloke named Tracy Lazenbury, who was an English fella. He was our lock forward and... He just stopped his arm. <laughs> there was a couple of these wonderful moments, but um, I'll remember Tracy Lazenbury forever for that moment that he saved me. But you know, once I got through those moments, and you know what, I played in a really good team, and they looked after me and protected me and gave me plenty of room to go and be myself. So it was a great way for a kid to come into first grade. I was extremely lucky. And success came pretty quickly, you know, like the fact that... Uh, mm. 
the oh, ready to go. That, that team was ready to go. MG and Brandy alone, you know, just the toughest forward and the most skillful back. You know, once you got them and you just fill the rest of the pieces in and there was plenty of other good players, John Carter and Royce obviously tough and Brad Izzard and Steve Carter and there was plenty of good players. Mm. So many magical moments there and of course we remember, you know, Royce scoring a double and I've been to many functions with MG where it's just, you know, still looked upon as the that magic moment the first time, right? The first is the best. Yeah, absolutely. We got there the year before so we didn't win. You know, running out on the day is pretty exciting. So you don't want to take that away from everyone. I know we sort of dwell on winning so much, but running out on the day, give your fans a chance to cheer. Not everyone wins. And we didn't do it right, you know. Our build-up wasn't right, and there was plenty of things wrong with what we did that week. But we got it right, and we are behind, and MG got sent off. Plenty of challenges thrown at us, and when Greg Alexander kicked the goal from the left-hand sideline to make it seven points clear with about a minute to go, you know, that was... I sort of stopped concentrating then. It was a... It was a lot of work, you know, and so I'd only been there a couple of years, but a lot of those blokes had worked for 12, 13 years to get to that, so I sort of got to realise how they felt when I won it in 2002 with the Roosters, mm. when you got to really work. And you build it. you got to build it. Yeah, and you're the main you got to build structure. it from the start, yeah. You, you know, there's processes in place and patience and bad times, and there weren't many bad times leading up to that one. Yeah. So you win the comp. There's a photograph I've seen of you and Greg Alexander and Cartwright and MG, all four of you going off to mm. England to represent Australia, all from the Penrith district and stuff. That's that's on MG's table there at Triple M Radio. It's just the thing he just looks at when he sits down, and I must have seen it a thousand times. What was that like to get picked for Australia? Well, that was a year before, so oh. we got beaten, and you go back to the club, and the club was packed, you know, thousands, you know, like just sea of people, and... What had happened was Wally Lewis during the week had done a, a fitness test. Uh, he broke his arm and they ruled him out. So there was a, a position available like in the backs really. So yeah, Cardi, MG, Brandy and then I got named. So it was mostly out of me or Brad Izzard. He was mostly the unfortunate one I suppose, Brad Izzard. You know, I, and I wasted it. I was, you know, they're hard work kangaroo tours. You know, it's a lot of drinking. There's a lot of man stuff going on. I was 18 and, you know, I wasn't ready for that, you can see how rooming with certain people and all those finer details that I think about now while I'm coaching, you know, they're so important. And like Chris Johns is a champion fellow and we're really good mates, but he loves a beer. I'm 18 from Penrith, so once I've had one, I'm, I'm not stopping until 20. I, I didn't handle it very well at all. So I'd love that time again. But unbelievable experience, just incredible. Rugby league at the time was huge. and I mean, the Super League in England now is still big, but... Those kangaroo tours were, you know, must-watch viewing for us back here, mm. you know, and the huge crowds, sellouts and that sort of stuff. Just as an 18-year-old, I, I was 18 and I went on a gap year to England and I just sort of fart-assed around down to Somerset by myself and I found that was challenging, you know, let alone being on the world stage, you know, being wanted and respected as a footballer must have been really hard. No, I don't think so. I don't think it was hard. I don't think any of it was hard, really. It didn't feel hard. The hardest part was coming back fat. <laughs> overweight that next month of training was hard yeah yeah so that that was that's what I always found the hard part the really the really hard training is the hard part you know the footy I love the stuff that comes in feels like it comes easy you know every time I've played I always thought my team was going to win so I always give myself a chance yeah the hard parts of training no pre-season 
Well, if you, you toured, <laughs> you didn't do pre-seasons. <laughs> that was a bonus. That's what killed me at the end, you know. My last couple of years, I was, you know, from 28 onwards, I retired from rep footy. So I didn't play for Australia in the off-seasons, and I did every pre-season, every session, and pretty much just ran myself into the ground, you know. We finished strong and finished career strong, but yeah, didn't miss anything. Just quickly interrupting the episode to say a very big thank you to the sponsor of this podcast, and that is Shore & Partners Financial Services. Shore & Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices across Australia, Shore & Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shoreandpartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for sure. Shore & Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth. And let's get back into the episode. What was it like, Freddie? Like you say, your big moment was obviously captaining a foundation club like the Roosters in 2002. Your last three seasons were all grand finals. I remember when you were walking back towards us at ANZ Stadium and you'd been smacked in the head, so you were bleeding, you had that bandage, and you just put your hand up when you knew that it was one and we just all went up with you. What was yeah, that moment, moment like? You could just see there was, you know, I was just walking straight towards them because I was going back into position and my position was the closest to the fans. And it was a position I loved because there was always Adrian Morley behind me and he's, I'd catch the ball and pass it on to Adrian and he was like the toughest bloke I knew, so... It was a great way to start the game. But just walking back into position, I knew where all the crowd were and just standing there like, you know, a bit of an acknowledgement was awesome. We hadn't won it for a long time, I just mm. remember it. And in 2000 as well, you played a lot of grand finals here in those last few years of your... Four, we played four in the last five, so... Yeah. It's funny when I, you know, when I want to feel full of myself, I wonder, you know, I played in six grand finals and won two, so that sits me back down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I lost four grand finals. Anyway. So if we move forward, you playing those grand finals, you eventually retire. A lot of blokes struggle once they hang up the boots. Mm. From the outside, it didn't sound like you did because you went pretty much into media and that type of stuff. But what was that like, that transition from playing and being that type of player to, to not playing anymore? In the final year, we are living in the city. So I moved. I lived on the beaches for a, a while and realised I had to move closer to training. So I had to move off the beach and get in. So I moved into a unit in the city in the rocks, which was like 10 minutes to train it. So I'd moved in in the year 2000. And that was just the start of dedicating my life to footy. You know, everything up to that stage of emotionally being done on talent. And then it was just working that process in of just, you know, being in the car at a certain time, getting to train, doing this, doing this, and just working a routine that was just unbreakable. And I just worked out once you get a routine, find out what works and just keep tweaking at it. But what I did when I, when I finished was moved out of the city and I, we went and bought a place, Marie and I, at Clavelli. So didn't own a builder and just built a house for 18 months. So I was there every day. And you, know, you work out that, you know, being around a team of tradies is, has its similar aspects to being in a footy team. Is, you, know, you, you catch up before, before work and, you know, you have a coffee and you have a chat and then you go about your day and sit down and have lunch together and... Yeah, you, know, you can see, you know, Bernard Tradio, there's a plenty of appeal to it because the camaraderie, working together. So I did that and I did an assistant coach with Chris Anderson and then pretty much as the house finished, I coached the Roosters. So once again, man, I never had time to look back. So just kept ploughing on. Let's talk about coaching because it's something that you're now doing and you've been very successful as New South Wales coach, but not just 
coaching the team, but building a team that the state love. Mm. And that's why you love your rural trip so much and you spend so much time out there. Why is that so important to you to make sure that that role is not just the, the three games a year? Well, it was set up in 2000 and when did Laurie Daly, probably when Laurie Daly got the job, about 2013 maybe? 12, 13, yeah. 13. So Peter Sterling asked me on the footy show because the job was coming up, Ricky Short had, I think he was going to Parramatta and couldn't do both jobs. And Peter Sterling said, oh, would you do it? And I said, yeah, why not? You know, not even thinking. So Laurie Daly was always going to be the coach, but that then forced it sort of into a process of sitting down and doing job interviews. It was the only job interview I ever did. <laughs> it was hilarious. And Did you go all right in the job interview? No, terrible. I had no idea what a job interview was, what, what I had to do. I basically went in there because Mal was the coach and they were, they were doing so well. And I said, well, I played Mal as a, you know, as a player, you know, Oh, yeah, I've got a lot of respect for Mal, but I'm not intimidated and I feel like, you know, we just need a bit of a change of players and, and I had some lists down what I thought was important. But no, it was, quite, it was quite hilarious, really, at the end of the day. So it was good, but I wasn't ready. But what I did do, I knew that, you know, I have this theory that if you can start by doing something for someone else. So what we did was we uh, went around, I grabbed Heine, he likes riding a motorbike, and I said, well, let's go around and find a way to put some work around a motorbike ride. And so we went around and what we did, we just asked all the kids, you know, who do you follow, who do you support, who are your favourite players? And a lot of them weren't saying New South Wales players. So realised at that stage that you had to, we had to sort of find some young kids coming through who were the good young kids. And at the same time, I was coaching the 16s and 18s New South Wales teams. And I didn't know it at the time, but they were all coming through there. So Cam Murray, Nick Cottrick, Nathan Cleary, Latrell Mitchells, all these young blokes all coming through the 16s and 18s. And at the time I ended up being the coach, we made 11 changes and they were pretty much all to those kids that I'd coached as 16s and 18-year-olds. But that all started. So pretty much the groundwork from getting the job in 2018 was done five or six years earlier when uh, when Laurie took the job and I just said, Loz, you go and coach. I said, I want to go and do this. And I assisted Loz for a couple of years. And that's where I got the foundations of what, what I believe in and who should play for New South Wales and what they should be about. Great success as well that's come with that sort of philosophy. I know you're a big, big man on putting good people around you and not thinking you've swallowed the map and you know everything yourself. So... Can you tell the listeners your thoughts around just making sure you have good people doing important stuff for you as you well, finish your Vegemite taste? That's right. Obviously, the players are important, but the staff, are, they can take you down different roads. So it was of the utmost important. And then before I did that interview in 2013, I went to Greg Alexander. So he's made sure the smartest bloke I know. He was the best player I knew. So I said, well, if I get the job, you're going to have to come and help. Mm. So he said, right, eh? Yeah, so he's come along and then there was Danny Badiris who, who I did the 16s and 18s with and he was the last captain I played for in New South Wales uh, when I come back for in 2004 for a couple of games and he's the toughest bloke I know. And Craig Fitzgibbon ended up coming along. He used to defend again next door. He stood next to me for like five years so I could rely on him. Hayden Knowles, a little bloke I'd been training with and we did a few of the city teams in and amongst there and he sort of believed in what I was about. So that was pretty much the start of the team. So, yeah, they're all they're just solid. Decent human beings. And that's what you need in coaching staff. You just need to be solid. Mm. When you've had so much success and stuff now, is it just 
What's that like, that moment where the series is won, that moment where you just know that it's done all that hard work and that planning? Because we get insight now, you know, we get to chat to you during the matches and so forth with the media coverage, but what's that actually like? Is there a moment where you're all just together and you can just shout and scream because it's done? Yeah, there's a time, you know, and you knew it as a player. So you weigh up how many tries can be scored in certain amounts of minutes and all that sort of rot. Yeah. So you do know, you know, there, there are times of games, you know, it's not necessarily the siren. You know, I think we won the first game by 50 and the second game was 26 nil. Now, the, the second game well, it was a contest for a long, a big part of it, but they were fantastic, the players. If anything, just to watch them, the way they played was, you know, you could really sit back and enjoy it. They really did it at a, a top level and not just, you know, f- uh, flamboyant tries, but just the way they work together. You know, everything we do at training is about working together. We have moves and plays now, but we talk about just working together, supporting each other, anticipating each other. And some of the tries they scored were just, you know, next level, mm. which I don't think I've seen before, especially at origin level where players don't play together week in, week out. So what it does do, it just justifies your beliefs. You know, we do a lot of alternative stuff that you know, no one's really done before. You know, whether it's breathing and just, you know, we, you know, whether it's earthing, breathing, whatever it is, it's all the human stuff. So the human stuff works. Who inspires you, Freddie? Everyone. What about your kids? I know how much you talk about them and how much you love them and stuff. I get inspired by mine all the time. I learn from them mm. all the time. It's an old school way to say, I'm the boss and you do what I say. But I think kids these days, you can flip it, can't you? You can learn a lot from them. Yeah, if I had a theory is listen to old people, hang with young people. Listen to people who have done it before and then you got to hang with young people. You know, they're just, they're at it. you only got to sort of just glimpse back into, you know, your own sort of past to realise how much energy you got as a teenager and stuff, and you just want to be part of that. So, yeah, you know, I love it. They, they get into their training, and I love how the fact they can get up and train, and they don't have to ask. And I don't have, you know, they don't need prompting at all, which is inspiring in itself to me. Like, you know, I just watch how much challenges kids have got these days, and you know, they've got so many things to drag them down. You know, so to watch my kids just get up and do shit without having to be asked. Couldn't ask for two better kids. And then that obviously is a reflection of Marie who had early on talk about the lion's share. Is it the is that what they say? The lion's yeah. share. Yeah. The heavy lifting. She might <laughs> she might have done the elephant share early on. I don't remember waking up much to the kids. Freddie, before we finish up with our fast five questions, I want to ask you just where do you see yourself in the next five to ten? You just keep going, keep rocking and rolling with New yeah. South Wales, keep doing what you're doing? I hope so. You know, to do what I do, like, you still, you know, it takes a lot of discipline and a lot of, you know, you still got to be driven to be doing all that. And, you know, I don't make it easy on myself. So cause I just know that if you do, then you just don't get the fruits or you don't get the great stuff. But eventually it'd be great. Marie's Greek, so it'd be good to spend more time in Greece at some stage. I can see that maybe in, you know, 10, 15 years. You know, I really love what I do. You know, I love the Channel 9 stuff. It's fantastic. And the coaching's just, you know, that's just a gift to be able to get all those good players and you know have a crack at something that's it's pretty tough it's the dream jobs at the moment fast five questions mate right eh? then i can have some of that vegemite taste that's been sitting there pretty cold <laughs> i'll take anything at the moment favorite holiday destination sussex inlet oh really oh just as a kid they're my best memories who'd you go with our whole family so there was my grandmother there were six of them. They were all sisters. 
They were awesome. All their kids. And we just pretty much rent out one whole corner of a caravan park for a couple of weeks. And I just look forward to that more than anything. Just So it just used to drive my older uncles mental. Drove them insane. Come and do this with me. Come and do that. You know, they all sort of out partying and doing a bit of that stuff, which I didn't realise, you know. But they were great to me, you know. They always gave me time and, yeah, best memories. Sounds like it. Favourite movie? Hmm. I think it goes through stages. I like uh, The American President, Michael Douglas. Yeah. It's a really good movie. Yeah, it's a really good show. I yeah. like it. That's uh, a good bit old school, mate. Yeah. I'm trying to think what uh, one of my new favourite movies is. Are you a Bond guy? Are you a oh, Mission yeah, Impossible? Like, uh, yeah, yeah, I love all that. Top Gun. I'm trying to think of uh, The Bournes. Because oh, I read that yeah. book, so I'm sort of a, a little bit hooked on them. But I've watched all them plenty and plenty of times. But I reckon American Presidents are one. If I had to waste two hours and I only had two <laughs> hours left, I'd go to that. Okay. Are you a book reader? I just read Sonny's book? book, actually. I've got Sonny's book okay. on uh, Grand Final. And I haven't. Re- I used to read lots of books when I played because we travelled a lot. So I was just constantly reading in my room, constantly. And sort of stopped. I uh, did a few audio books, but more when I started coaching, I started doing all the stuff around the, you know, the mental side and just trying to knowledge myself up that way. But after reading Sonny's book, I only read that in a couple of days. So I'm going to do a lot more of reading now. I'm going to start reading again. I'm going to bring your book down. It's called The Second Mountain. Right. It's like you, you reach your peak. So for you, it would be the fact that you're a, one of the best rugby league players of all time. So people go, well, that's him. He's done. That's what his life was mm. meant to be. But you get to the top of that peak and you go, oh, bugger, there's another mountain oh. just that I couldn't see before. And that's called the second mountain. It's like actually what you're meant to be doing in life is the second mountain. Well, uh, you know what? I can see the start of it. You know, there's things that I've been working with and I can see it. Well, Jacko gave it to me because he reckons that I've got my second mountain now with Gotcha for Life. Yeah, yeah. You know, he said, well, you think you're going to do that? Oh, mate. Oh, no, actually that's the next 20 years, that's going to be the stuff you're going to be remembered for. And that yeah. might be for you a whole lot of stuff that you haven't even done yet. But coaching obviously would be a part of that. Favourite quote? Have you got a quote that you live by or someone Favourite told quote. you? Yeah. I actually made one up. I don't even know if I've read it before <laughs> the other day. <laughs> well, let's write it down and then I gave be a yours. friend of mine, because I really enjoy writing. I love writing. Mm-hmm. You know, I write letters and I love just writing. I'm giving someone a journal. Nice. And... My quote on the inside is, life is worth writing about. And I don't know if I've heard that before, read it before, but I, I'm thinking I might claim it. <laughs> I'm writing it down now. What's it called when you plagiarise? I hope I'm not plagiarising someone, but it just sort of come to me. B. Fittler, life is worth writing about. Yeah. We're locking it in. It's yours, baby. You like it? I do. Yeah. And it's true. Oh, absolutely. I just did a meditation course for five weeks and... What Off the back it? of that, it's, a, it's called Meditation for Men. He's a bloke in local Jason Partington, Jason, down in Newport. He's an absolute bloody champion. And I actually met with him a couple of days ago and he brought me a journal and said, right, start writing his stuff down. Yeah. Start not being worried about things, saying what a wonderful opportunity it is to do it, rather than being worried if it's going to be a success yeah. or whatever it might be. So I just started writing down some quotes and some bits and bobs. It just calms you, doesn't it? Oh, writing's the best. I can sit there and write... I- I've got a little corner of nearly, you know, you can see where my ass. you can actually see the shape of my ass <laughs> in the corner of this lounge and I just plonk myself, you know, like at six o'clock, I've Peter Overton's about to come on. <laughs> it's the first time the telly goes on, there's Pete. And then I just, you know, and I 
feel me riding out, and I just, I just enjoy running riding. What do you ride about? Anything. So I go through a process. There's some things I want to tick off every day. There's some breathing, some stretching, uh, some hydration, uh, some talking. So I just you know, give them a bit of a score if I've done them. And I normally do all them by about 6.30. <laughs> so, other than the talking, obviously. Yeah. And then there's just there's some things I want to do in a day. And then uh, just whatever happens in the day. Beautiful. If something special happens in the day, I'll just write. But I need another book because... I've sort of got that much, you know, what am I trying to show there, 10 yeah, centimetres yeah, to write, which, yeah. you know, at the end of the day. Yeah, you need pages. You need pages. Yeah. And there's times where you just, you know, really write. And a lot of I've got around my joints, so I've set up all areas that have got little seats everywhere. So that'll be the writing seats. So I think, yeah, that's going to be my thing from 50 on. So I'm 50 next year in February. Mm-hmm. So things you've learnt. Yeah. Life is worth writing about. There you go. I did one ages ago. Yeah, a long time ago, so it was very different. But I don't know if I write a book, but I just like writing, you know. Yeah, just writing for yourself. Just writing. Yeah. Last but not least, yeah. your favourite charity, which we're going to give $10,000 to as you Favourite charity? On. Yeah. Uh, I like the one you do, Gussie. <laughs> I'll do that one. Gotcha for life, gotcha thank you. Gotcha for life, I think. Yeah, it's hard speaking about it's something that we did so naturally as kids. You know, where they just doesn't seem to come as natural these days. So, mm. you know, finding good friends and hanging out and, yeah, so huge challenges. Huge. And yeah, I think they're being dudded. They're not being helped. Mm. So you've got a big job out here. Yeah. Well, people like you to help me as well. I've got some – got. you talk about putting a team around you for New South Wales. Well, it's the same with Gotcha for Life, you know. Great ambassadors and not, not just a name but someone who can go, hey, I'm going to live it myself and I'm going to – turn up at an event and I'm going to put my hand up and it just helps sell tickets, it helps people talk about it, helps awareness, but we need action to go behind the awareness. That's the, the key and that's what we do when we do our trips out to the country and we're going to do one again I think in February. We're going to go north and south for a couple of weeks and I love that stuff. That's the one thing I, I feel, you know, and I've got a young daughter who sort of listens to a lot of it, you know, but there's no action. There's very little action. So... We all need to sit every day or every couple of days and sit and talk. Yep. You know, we need to set them up. Well, when we have the face-to-face, it's these, you know, surf clubs that say 257 people at Avalon, all those blokes walked in that night and they thought they were going to be the only person there. Yeah. And all of a sudden they realise that other blokes are going through stuff. Mm-hmm. They talk and go, well, oh, maybe, oh, that's how I felt. I tried this and this. And all of a sudden it's a positive conversation around something that's natural. Yeah. And that's what life's all about is not sitting in your own stuff talking about it and being vulnerable enough and lead with vulnerability and that's what we're going to do at Gotcha. So That's good. Thank you so much for your time, Freddie. Beautiful, sitting here, having a bit of Breco. Good morning. I've ticked off all my boxes now. My God, tens. You've done it, brother. Just tens. (laughs) I'm now about to get on a motorbike and go for a ride. How good's life? Wow. (laughs) You deserve it, brother. I'll be riding today. (laughs) See you, mate. That was Brad Freddie Fittler. What I loved about this chat was... He was just so relaxed, the fact we were sitting in his front yard with the lemurs there after having a workout, having some toast and having some juice. For someone like me that looked up at Freddie and now a friend of his, I just keep pinching myself that we have this type of relationship that we can just talk about absolutely anything without any dramas at all. Coming up in our next episode of Not An Overnight Success is Betty Clemenko. Betty is the daughter of Westfield co-founder John Saunders. She is among the wealthiest women in Australia and the only one to have her own professional racing car team, Erebus Motorsport. 
Her life has been anything but ordinary. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or share it with someone that you think might also enjoy it. A big thank you to Sean Partners Financial Services who have generously supported this podcast and also donated $10,000 to the charity of choice of each of our guests to thank them for their time. Sean Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices around Australia, Sean Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shawnpartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for sure. Shawn Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth.